in some senses, I feel as if I'm doing the impossible this morning. But uh, as I said last week, we're just taking snapshots in Revelation. And so there is a real sense in which, yeah, we, we don't, we're not dealing with things in detail. We're taking a bigger picture. And we're just trying to take some snapshots. And these snapshots really are of Jesus. Because the book of Revelation is all about Jesus. The one who is victor. The one who is Lord. The one who is conquered. The one who has brought salvation. The one who has defeated death. Satan and the powers of darkness. The one who rules supreme and is Lord over all. And so it's some snapshots of Jesus just taken from the book of Revelation, under the title Living Life with the End in Sight. And I explained where that came from uh, last week. But this letter, because that's what it is, it's a letter. It's a letter to these seven churches. The letters are not just simply chapters 2 and and 3, but the letter is the whole of Revelation. What we have in chapters 2 and 3 are just simply seven messages to seven particular churches, but also seven messages to the church as a whole, including Breton Baptist Church. Messages that we need to take to heart, that we need to hear. But Revelation reminds us that God is still in control, that nothing changes who he is, nothing changes his purpose and his plans, and that he is utterly trustworthy. We've read the final chapter, and God wins. The snapshot we're going to look at this morning is a snapshot that shows us who Jesus is throughout history. And when I refer to history, I refer to that time, from the moment of his ascension to the time of his return, because that's the period that Revelation covers. And we shall look at that a little bit later on, perhaps next week. That this is a snapshot of the the whole of history between his ascension and his return there that John is speaking into. That which we know as AD history. In these these chapters that we're looking at from chapters 2 through to 5, I have two snapshots to pick out and for us to reflect on. In chapters 2 and 3, we have Jesus and his church. How Jesus understands himself in relationship to his church. How he understands himself in relationship to Breton Baptist Church. Not just to Ephesus or Smyrna or Laodicea, but to the church. And secondly, in chapters 4 and 5, Jesus in heaven. These two snapshots are at the same time true. And if we can hold them together, they bring so much strength, comfort and hope into our everyday lives. Because we realise that Jesus truly is Lord over all. Jesus is the powerful one, both at the centre of his church and also central within the drama of heaven. Now, I was going to read from, at this point, from chapter 5, but I read that earlier on as part of our worship because that just seemed right at that, at that moment. 
And it was just that thought at that moment as we were worshipping together. So often we think, don't we, oh, what a feeble voice we have. You know, we may only be 50 or whatever it might be this morning here. And sometimes we feel as if our voices are croaking and our voices are struggling and, and we can't get beyond where we are. And sometimes, let's, let, let's be honest, we're embarrassed by our own voice because we don't like the sound of our own voice. But I've just read that there because I just felt God just simply saying, look, open your eyes. Open your eyes and see this vista. Open your eyes and see that you are part of this glorious multitude of people who down through the ages, you're the church here on earth, but you're also the church triumphant in heaven. And you're gathered around the throne of God and you're part of that worshipping community crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and power. Sometimes we need, we need that perspective, don't we? Because so often we feel, we feel isolated, we feel alone, we feel our own weakness and we feel our own struggles. But yes, we need that vision to know that we are on the victory side. But then to step back into chapters 2. And just to read a couple of verses, first of all from from Revelation 1. Jesus and his church. And uh, we find that uh, in verse uh, 10 uh, of of chapter 1, John writes, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then he turns round and he has this glorious vision of one like a son of man. And we looked at that last week a little bit. But then in verse 19, he has this commission. Write, therefore, what you have seen. Remember again, John is writing what he sees. What he sees. Yes, he hears some words within that, but he's primarily writing what he sees. And you know how hard that can be to write that description. Write what you have seen, what is now, yes, in this moment, John, But what will take place later? What will take place in the future? The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And his vision of the one like a son of man began with this Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. And in verse 16, it tells us that in his right hand are held seven stars. And now it tells us that here he is, those seven lampstands are the seven churches that he is to write to. And the stars that the, son of, the one like the Son of Man is holding in his right hand are the angels of those seven churches. 
No, it doesn't give any more explanation than that as to who those angels are or what those angels are. But just for a moment, allow your imagination to go that there is an angel over each of those, those communities. There is an angel of God watching over each of those communities. And I want to say there's an angel watching over the church at Bratton today. But we've got here this one like a son of man standing amongst the, uh, the lampstands. And then in chapter 2 it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Throughout Revelation, we find there's lots of sevens, seven stars, seven lampstands, there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls, there's seven blessings. There's lots of sevens. Seven is the number of completion, or it's the number of perfection. And what John is saying to the people is, this is something that is complete, this is something that is perfect. It's something that would have been readily known to his readers and very clear to their understanding, this idea that seven was the number of perfection, the number of completion. Nothing could be added. Nothing could be added to it there. It seems legitimate, and I think all the commentators would agree, that actually as he writes these messages to these seven churches, yes, he's writing them to individual churches, but how linguistically it's written... He's writing it to the church. The church down through the ages. The church that includes us. The universal church. Now the first thing that we are told in chapter 2 verse 1 is that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. Here in chapter 1 he says he stands. He stands in the midst of the seven lampstands. He stands amongst them. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we find that Jesus walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's walking among the churches. He's not indifferent to, or absent from, or unmoved by, or unresponsive to his church. He walks among his church. Jesus is fundamentally committed to his church, local, national, universal And he demonstrates that commitment by walking among them. Just for a moment, imagine Jesus walking down this aisle. Jesus is walking among you this morning. Jesus is here. What was one of the last things that he said to his disciples? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you, even until the end of time. And here we have this picture that John has of Jesus walking among the church. He's not absent. In the concluding chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus states through John, I Jesus have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And again, it's churches plural. 
Not just referring in a sense to these seven, but to the church universal. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Jesus is deeply committed to his church. He is never going to leave it, never going to abandon it. It was never going to walk away from it. Because the church is his agent of salvation for this world. We have that commission to bring salvation, the salvation of Jesus Christ to this world. To be witnesses of that salvation. What did he say to Peter? In Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. But just imagine for a moment what this says, this image says to these churches that, that, uh, that John is writing to. Churches who are weak, churches who are struggling, churches who are under persecution, churches who don't know what tomorrow is going to bring, churches who who are just isolated and wondering what the future is going to bring. And here John is saying, look, Jesus walks among you. Jesus has not abandoned you, but he's there. The second thing that we learn from these passages is that, Je- that, that Jesus knows his church. How? How? Because in chapter 2, verse 18, he says he's the one whose eyes are like blazing fire. He's the one who sees. And then later on in chapter 2, 23, he says he's the one who searches hearts and minds. Pause there for a moment. He's walking here among you this morning. And he's searching your heart and your mind. What does he find? What does he find? Would you be happy this morning for Jesus to lift the lid on your heart and your mind? Would you be happy for what he sees? What would he see? Ten times he says in these passages, I know your deeds. Ten times. And to each church, he has something specific to say. To the church at Ephesus, I know your hard work and your perseverance. To Smyrna, he says, I know your affliction and your poverty. To Pergamon, he says, I know where you live. That could almost sound a bit threatening, couldn't it? You know, these gangster movies, and somebody says, I know where you live. But perhaps from the voice of Jesus, it doesn't sound quite so threatening. To Thyatira, he says, I know your love, faith and service. To Sardis, I know your reputation. To Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength. And to Laodicea, I know your lukewarm complacency. Jesus knows their weaknesses, their strengths, their hypocrisies, their faithfulness. He knows them inside out and he is wholeheartedly committed to them. He's wholeheartedly committed to them. But he's not afraid. He's not afraid to hold them accountable. He says this to the church at Ephesus, I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. 
And then he goes on to say later on, he says, look, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. He's not afraid to warn. He's not afraid to close a church. He's not afraid to take away their lampstand. To the church at, uh, is it Philadelphia? Um, there, I've not really got it written down, but he, he talks about being, having an open door that no one can shut. He put before them an open door. He's demonstrating to them that he is the Lord of the church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the one who gives the open door. He's the one who opens the door. He's the one who can close the door. No one else. Why? Because he's head of the church. He's Lord of the church. The third thing we learn, and uh, I know I'm struggling for time, the third thing we learn are the seven priorities Jesus places upon the church. He pinpoints seven attributes that every church should display. Seven attributes that, yes, Breton Baptist Church should display. Love. A willingness to suffer. Dedication to the truth. Holiness of life. A commitment to mission. A sincerity of heart. And a, whole no, a wholeheartedness in everything. We don't have time to comment on each of those attributes, but Ephesus had much to commend it. It was commended for its hard work, its perseverance, and it had an intolerant attitude to evil, and it had a sound theological discernment. But all these virtues did not compensate for one thing, their lack of love. They were in danger of their lampstand being removed. Why? Because of their lack of love. What is it that Paul writes? Without love, everything is a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. We can be theologically straight and narrow and down the line. We can be hardworking and we can persevere. We can be intolerant of that which is evil. But unless it is immersed in love, Jesus says, I will take away the lampstand. So here we have a snapshot of Jesus active in history within his church. Active today, walking among it, observing it, and exercising lordship over it. But with Revelation chapter 4, we turn abruptly from the church on earth to the church in heaven. From Christ walking among the flickering lampstands to Christ at the very centre of the unchanging throne room of God. It is the same Christ, but from an entirely different perspective. After this, in chapter 4, after this, these seven messages to the seven churches, I looked 
And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. John is invited up through an open door, an open door of revelation. And as John looked through the door, what he saw developed in three scenes. First of all, he sees a throne from which God rules the universe. It's a throne with someone sitting on it. And we're not going to look too much at that, but just to notice that, that it's the throne that is occupied. Someone is sitting on it. God is on the throne. It's a throne that is, is, is described in all its splendour and in all its glory. But in verse 3 it says, A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne just reminding us of God's grace and of God's covenant with the world, the rainbow. We Christians have the first claim to the rainbow. And we need to sometimes reclaim it. We sometimes need to reclaim it. A symbol of God's grace and of God's covenant love. So he's got this, the throne from which there the throne there is surrounded by 24 elders symbolising the Old Testament um, patriarchs and the New Testament apostles. There's that sense of worship and of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And the elders and the 24 elders falling down there at the, foot of the, at the foot of the throne. But then it moves on to another scene and it revolves around a scroll. John does not tell us what, the scroll, what this scroll is in chapter 5. Then I saw that the, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll was writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. It doesn't tell us what this is. But from what happens in chapter 6, when the seals are broken, we know that it is the book of history. It is the book in which all of history is written. Closed, sealed, and held in God's right hand. We've seen it in Ezekiel chapter 2, and we've seen it in Daniel chapter 12. But what a precious thought, that the whole of history is held in God's right hand. That God has history in the palm of his hand. But this scene brings consternation in heaven. Because the angel comes forward and he cries out, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? And it tells us that no one in heaven and no one on earth or no one under the earth is found worthy, worthy to open the scrolls. There. John himself begins to weep. Because I wept and wept because no one was found to be worthy to open the scroll and look inside. But then an elder taps him on the shoulder and stops him. Do not weep. See, 
the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And the third scene shifts from the throne to the one sitting on the throne holding the scroll to the Lamb. And we read that then I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain Verse 6, standing at the centre of the throne. And in verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And with that, there enters in a whole wave of worship within heaven. This lamb steps forward and takes the scroll. It becomes the signal for the four living creatures, then the 24 elders to fall prostrate before the Lamb and declare a new song, declaring his worthiness to take up the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Next, millions of angels join in proclaiming his worthiness and finally John hears every creature throughout the whole universe ascribing praise and honour to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But what is it that enables the Lamb to open the scroll when no one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it? What is it? Clearly it is because he was slain and because of what he achieved by his death. It brings us to the pivotal point of history, the hinge upon which everything else turns the cross of Calvary. But what is it that makes the cross the key to history? The cross illuminates history because it speaks of victory. The reason why the Lamb was able to open the scroll because he had triumphed. In verse 5, throughout the New Testament, the cross is represented as victory, not defeat, as triumph, not tragedy. The world might see it as weakness. The world might see it as defeat. The world might see it as humiliation. But God has made it the place of triumph and of victory for now and forevermore and for all eternity. For as Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, on the cross, Christ dethroned and disarmed the principalities and powers of evil, triumphing over them in the cross. The cross illuminates history because it speaks of redemption. The repeated use of the title, the Lamb. I wonder what was in John's mind when he hears the voice of the elder saying, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb. If I heard that, I would expect to turn to see a lion. The most majestic of beasts. The most powerful of beasts. The most glorious of beasts. And yet he sees a lamb. A lamb. 
a lamb that has been slain. The repeated use of that title, the lamb, will immediately remind Jewish readers of the Passover. For just as the Passover lamb was slaughtered and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts, bringing redemption to all who stayed within that house, so Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us so that we might be redeemed from what Peter calls the empty way of life handed down by our ancestors. The cross speaks of redemption. The cross illuminates history because it speaks of suffering. For the sufferings of Christ, although unique in their redemptive significance, were the prototype of the suffering of God's people. The fact that Jesus Christ suffered there on Calvary brings purpose and meaning to all the suffering that we see around us and we experience. And we will pick that up a bit later in, some, in Revelation. But finally, the cross illuminates history because it speaks of weakness. And more specifically, power through weakness. Seen in its most dramatic form in Christ on the cross and John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5. For at the centre of God's throne, a symbol of power and authority, there stands a slain lamb. A symbol of weakness. In other words, power through weakness. Dramatised in God on the cross and the lamb on the throne lies at the heart of ultimate reality. No wonder when the lamb stepped forward and took hold of the scroll that was in God's right hand and lifted that scroll out of the hand of the Almighty God. No wonder the whole of heaven erupted in glorious praise because he had been found worthy worthy to take hold of that scroll. He'd been found worthy to take hold of history and to reveal that history and to be Lord of that history. And we will see what happens next as we turn in chapter 6 to Jesus, Lord of history. Let's pray.